Exercise is like medicine, but what's missing? My answer's coming up next. Welcome to Happily Ever Active, where we crack the consistency code with fitness tips on motivation, mindset, and much, much more. Now, here's your host, author of Feel Like It, and the guy with the silent O, Kelly Dell. Hey everyone, it's Kelly again for episode number 10. I've already got 10 episodes produced for the show, and I hope you've enjoyed them. I hope you've taken some information from each one and been able to incorporate it into what you're trying to accomplish with your fitness, which I think for all of us, myself included, is to be active a little bit more on a week-to-week basis. So I hope you've enjoyed them. Thank you so much for subscribing to the show. If you haven't, please do and get updates when new episodes are published. I've been putting them out every Friday. I'm trying to publish episodes that you can use, at least apply to your mindset or apply to how you're building your routine and to, in a way, arm you for a fitness culture that is often working against us. So thank you again for joining me on episode 10. I've had a very busy week. I don't know where to really start. I was on a podcast. Uh, Lisa Kurlowitz also has a podcast, and I mentioned that I interviewed her in episode eight, I want to say. She's in episode eight. She also has um, a podcast called Elisa Unfiltered, and I guested on her show. She was dis- has been discussing topics to do with motivation and physical activity, so the timing was just right for us to sort of swap places. So I did that on, uh, what was that? That dropped on Wednesday for her show. That is available at alisaunfiltered.com. You can take a look at that. That's an hour interview. So if you want to dive a little deeper, I talk a lot about my book in that episode, so fair warning. She has a lot of questions. She pulls out some very, very specific things that resonated with her. And she's actually in the book. She Alisa's in the chapter Lessons from the Loyal. Her story is so powerful, as you heard in the episode that I uploaded a few weeks ago, and has so much value that I had to include her in the book. So check that out. That was a a key moment this week or a key thing this week. The other thing is I fell in the shower. Completely, ridiculously fell, something I've never done. I slipped on one of my kids' bath toys, which are really uh, a hazard if I really think about it. And I decided that the shower curtain was going to be my brace. I put my arm or my hand on the brace and I slipped right out of the shower and I clanked my head on the toilet. So I got a nice shiner in my right eye. So there you go. I don't know what to make of that except for that was pretty ridiculous. Um, I know another highlight of this week is I had a chance to interview a woman named Jessie Blondin, who is a run commuter, a very, very committed run commuter who is also a three-time Boston Marathon qualifier. So she's running Boston again this spring. Her story is really, really neat. I had a chance to sit down with her. That interview will be coming up next week, next Friday. So that was also a highlight on top of all the other things that I get up to with my fitness, which is uh, these days a very heavy on the free outdoor community fitness. It has been for a few years now, and it's amazing. In uh, in Ottawa, there's so many great groups. So it was a fruitfully busy week. I want to point out something, though. I got a great message, or I was tagged in a a 
Instagram post this week by a woman in the UK who was sort of reinforcing one of the messages that I have been um, pushing, I guess, if you want to say, in the last, uh, well, I've been pushing since the show started, and I definitely push it and talk about it a lot in my book. Pippa posted that she that she wasn't really feeling like going to the gym on this one particular day, but instead of doing nothing or going to the gym and having a subpar or even an awful workout, she went to do a gentle 3K run instead. It was something that she said to herself she felt more like doing, so she went and did it, which I love. I just love that adjustment, and I'm just wondering... Food for thought. Have you done anything like that lately? Have you used what you feel and how you want to feel as a tool to create an experience that was resonating? I'll give you an example. In my life, I I had planned a run on Monday, Monday morning this past week, and totally wasn't feeling it. And maybe it's because the spring weather, which is trying to come through here in Ottawa, it's just made the roads and the trails a mess and I don't run on treadmills. I can't, I can't do it. It's just not my thing. And so maybe that was contributing, but nonetheless, I had decided that I was going to go to the gym and do some lifting. And this is something I've been craving for a little while and I wanted to honor that. And so I went and I did a leg workout at the gym, fulfilled those cravings. And it wasn't super long. It was like 30 minutes, 35 minutes. I did things that I really enjoy when I was there. But now I'm super motivated to go back and I've been back a couple times since. So it seems like this might be going back into the rotation. And that's the thing about fitness is that it's not always fixed. You might have some things that you would call staples that you eventually include in your routine almost on a regular basis. But there are other things. And some of these things are seasonal. If you are not an outdoor runner and you don't like the treadmill, maybe you just run in the spring, summer, and fall. And then you kind of take the winters off, Uh, especially if you're not really training for any races or anything like that. You're not necessarily a a serious, I'm using that word in uh, air quotes here, a serious competitor. So don't feel like you've got to create a plan and that's got what you got to stick to for the rest of your life. There's going to be some facets that are going to be fluid. Of course, I have staples. I have things that I keep coming back to every week, almost without fail. So, uh, and lifting is one of those things that is sort of in and out, in and out. And right now, it seems like whatever, the moon is in some sort of position. The stars are aligned that I really feel like lifting and we're off and running. So I could definitely relate to Pippa this week. So nice job, Pippa. That actually gave me a little inspiration too. So if you got any reflections on that, you can tag me at kelly.dell on Instagram. You can also tag a photo of you doing something you really love, something where you're in your element and tag it happily ever active show. And I can feature that on the Instagram feed and we can spread the good vibes. I just love that stuff. So speaking of nice jobs, and again, nice job, Pippa, out there across the pond. Um, Speaking of jobs, I think today I might be doing a job on a belief or a notion that's been gaining a lot of popularity. And you've seen it around, probably. If you have it, it's not going anywhere. So you'll come across it. And that belief, that popular maxim is exercise is medicine. And I wanted to donate some time to decoding this maxim a little bit and providing some context behind this concept, this movement, if you will. As usual, I'm critical, which shouldn't be a surprise given what I've covered in recent episodes. But don't worry, amidst it all, I've got my question of the week for you. I haven't forgotten about you. And actually this week, there's two. As I've stated before, our behavior, our motivation really ties to the methods we use 
to start and get active, start and stay active. That ties to our mindset we take towards physical activity. And that mindset comes mostly from the culture that we swim in. So today's popular fitness culture. And a lot of things influence popular fitness culture. And there's usually changes in that fitness culture over time. I mean, history shows this over and over again. And with those changes comes a different mindset. And that goes down the chain to, again, affect how we approach physical activity, the methods we take. And again, if we tie all that logic together, then our motivation is really tied to all of these things in some at some level. And I want to keep introducing things at each of those levels. So culture, mindset, uh, methods, and motivation, all of these levels and these different facets, because it can really help us understand what's happening and also help us see what's going on in the world that is um, helping us or maybe harming us. So let's add some history to this idea of exercise as medicine. So about 2,500 years ago, this guy, you've heard of him, Hippocrates, Ye of the Hippocratic Oath, which upholds physicians to a code of ethics. He wrote, eating alone will not keep a man well. He must also take exercise. So 2,500 years ago, this statement was out there. And I love how he used the word or the phrase, take exercise. I hadn't actually heard that phrase until I lived in the south of England way back about 15, 16 years ago. It was a phrase that always sounded a bit funny to me, a bit odd, as if it was like, ah, I'm going to go and take my medicine, which of course has relevance to today's topic. That take exercise phrase has roots all the way back 2,500 years ago, which is crazy. Now, let's just skip 2,400 years (laughs) right here. So 2,400 years later, a Harvard doctor named Dudley Sargent wrote a book, and in his text, he was one of the first people to really explicitly link exercise, health, and medicine, the practice of medicine. So physicians as being proponents of physical activity, and this was a a landmark, a landmark text, if you will. So when it comes to our overall health, like our population health and how we're doing as a species, around this point, though, the focus turned to battling infectious diseases. So although exercise and physical activity was seen as this really wonderful thing and it was starting to get medicalized or being part of the the medical culture. A lot of attention shifted away from it and things like vaccines and treatments, other treatments for diseases like uh, typhus and um, influenza, all the things that really did massive damage to populations really started grabbing more and more attention. And great things started happening. In fact, if you look at our life expectancy, we're around, I don't know, 80 years old. Let's just make it a general 80 years old right now. But around that time, 100, 125 years ago, it was about 40. Most of those gains happened through controlling infectious diseases. Infectious disease was a low-hanging fruit because of medical technologies like vaccines. So that's a pretty neat transition that was going on. But around that same time, there was, I guess, a competitive movement to do with physical activity. And that really started with the early days of the YMCA. They created these big open indoor spaces. And the, I guess, the discourse became more about playing games and sports. Whereas the new age of, of, of physical education coming from doctors and physicians 
really got supplanted or at least was overshadowed by this idea of, I guess, recreation. And this really what this meant for people who were trying to be more active in the face of this new first, this new uh, interest in, you know, the science of fitness was that people would go to gyms originally or they started going to gyms first to uh, it was almost like a lab setting, I guess. They they did anthropometric testing and those types of things. And that stuff still exists. But the YMCA made it a more social recreational place, that is uh, gyms or community centers, where communities could go out and play and, and interact. And oddly, a big part of the medical community criticized this source of exercise because they felt people were not prepared to do them or do these sports, do these activities safely. So we have this conflict. And of course, making sports and games a central piece of physical activity introduced this idea of winners and losers, right? This is a part of a very big part of today's popular culture. In fact, fitness is now very competitive. In fact, I would say it's there are opportunities to be competitive through fitness more and more than there ever has been. And this is something that physical education classes made part and parcel of phys ed, right? Uh, for most of the 1900s, you go to phys ed class and you'd play basketball, you played volleyball, the sports would change, and you'd have often some kids who were really good and some kids who really weren't. And it was really this, I don't know, this forum for winning and losing, particularly if you had a physical educator who might not have taken that idea of education that seriously. So there's this legacy to do with creating this winning and losing sports competitive culture that is actually, I think, harmed countless relationships with people uh, or countless relationships that people have formed with fitness because it instilled from my perspective a chronic dose of negative self-judgment on the exercise experience for a lot of people and that persisted up until like definitely when I was a kid going to phys ed and and that sort of stuff so this is not something that um, really disappeared it might still be sticking around today in, in some fashion. And of course, physical education has been under attack for quite some time as a place to cut. So not only was physical education maybe not a pleasant experience for a lot of people, but in a way, the shift to a sports and games focus made physical education or phys ed classes vulnerable to criticism as being non-academic. And so it's easier to chop it down if, well, what are these kids really learning? They're not really studying anything. Okay, that's an important idea for the advent or the emergence or the, almost the, the re-emergence of this idea of exercise is medicine. Feeling the heat, physical education in some ways tried to legitimize itself academically by making physical fitness more of a science or taking that side of things much more seriously. And this is, again, this is a pivotal point in the exercise is medicine movement. Clearly, the notion that physical activity is good for us has been around for thousands of years. That's kind of my point. I can't possibly summarize all that history in one episode, but the mindset that physical activity is time well spent because of how enjoyable it is has been under attack, in my opinion. Medicine is one of the most trusted institutions of our time by far. Governments informed by medicine have kept trying to put responsibility back into the equation by educating people about how good it is for us. And as physical education, Decoupled from sports and athletics, which are sources of great enjoyment for a lot of people, despite the side effects of it being a winning and losing culture, it did change a lot of how people were thinking about physical activity. 
it became way more scientific starting in about the 1960s. And with it came this flurry of assessment practices that were imposed on our youth. I mean, I'm growing up in Canada. We were do we would get these uh, badges, different colors like gold, silver, bronze, etc., for doing this uh, annual physical activity testing. And uh, a lot of people would go through this process and then be deemed that they were unfit. And as you know, if you've listened to some of my earlier episodes, we internalized this culture of self judgment. This treated the time we worked on our bodies much less like free recreational time where we pursued things we enjoyed to time where we worked on our bodies for the sake of our health. It's, it's, it was a responsible endeavor. That's the whole idea that exercise is good for you, right? And it worked because things like running became popular during this time and the fitness industry grew exponentially. Money was being spent and made on the idea of living a fit lifestyle and universities were cranking out research that suggested, again, exercise is good for you. It's just good for you in all these different ways. But the ultimate conclusion is, yeah, yeah, exercise, yeah, it's good for you. We were right the first time. The phrase exercise is medicine was apparently introduced in 1989 by a sports medicine magazine. So that was the first time it really came into the culture. And as the evidence piled up in that populations that moved were ultimately healthier, this mindset that exercise is medicine was crystallized further. People were doubling, tripling down on it. And again, it's not wrong. Exercise is good for us, right? Exercise acts a lot like medicine. And research started to look into dose-response relationships and things like this, like exercise was, in effect, a pill. So they were looking between, or they're looking at the link between fitness and health in very specific ways. Finally, 10 years ago, a big event put on by the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Medical Association introduced and actually trademarked the exercise as medicine concept, which now is growing in our public discourse about fitness. In fact, the American College of Sports Medicine president, Robert Salas at the time said, if we had a pill, and I'm quoting here, if we had a pill that conferred all the proven health benefits of exercise, physicians would widely prescribe it to their patients and our healthcare system would see to it that every patient had access to this wonder drug. And with this institutional alliance, sports medicine and medicine, a powerful pillar of today's fitness culture had been formalized in my opinion and health promotion initiatives have since been peppering us with this maxim that exercise is medicine like Hippocrates was saying, we should be taking, like a pill. While the case being made by the academic community is that we should treat exercise more like a pill and less like a recreational endeavor, the research from health and exercise psychology keeps suggesting that knowing exercise is good for us isn't good enough. That as far as motives go, it is limited. And this is a, an issue. This is a problem. And so the question I have for you, one of the questions, the first question is, how much does knowing exercise is medicine, how much does that help you maintain a regularly active lifestyle? Is commitment to moving more often an intellectual exercise, one that is bolstered by more education, Or is it fueled by attraction, enjoyment, and positive self-challenge, trying to master something that's important to us? Exercise has medicinal effects. I know this firsthand, especially through living with depression. I know I should be moving, but 
to me, it's not even close. It's not an intellectual, rational thing to me. It has a role, as I said, but it's not really the dominant factor, not by a long shot. It's true that knowing the benefits of something can help us start, but I'm much more interested in staying with it because that's really where the real benefit is to me, is staying with it, a routine that we can maintain and sustain. The research on motivation doesn't really align well with the intellectual case. I'm not saying that knowing exercise is good for us is completely useless. Again, I'm not saying that. But who doesn't know what's good for us by now? I mean, is that news to you? I'm not anti-medicine. I'm not anti-science, not in the slightest. I am, I'm always trying to enhance my practice with evidence. And so I want to have an evidence-based practice and an evidence-based position on things as much as possible. But there is a gap in all of this. And a simple thought experiment, I think, can reveal it. So play along with me here. If you lined up a bunch of healthy vegetables, kale, uh, Brussels sprouts, spinach, broccoli, all the stuff as a kid, we, we had to kind of plug our noses to eat. So if I put those out on the table and I said, you can only choose one, that's it. How would you choose? Now, you might choose the healthiest one, the one that gives you more bang for your health buck, if you will. But the one you'll probably choose <laughs> is the one that is the most palatable, the one that you are going to eat the one that is something maybe tastier than the others. And in this process, just like I've said with physical activity, taste matters, right? By taking the medicinal approach to exercise, however, willpower is still very much in play because our tastes are not considered. And the relationship between our tastes and willpower is really important. If we keep doing things that are unpalatable, we're going to have to use willpower a lot. Willpower is a tool, it can be a really good tool, but it is not a lifestyle. It cannot be a dominant part of your routine if you're interested in sustaining that routine over time. It's easier to maintain a healthy diet if the healthy foods you choose are enjoyable to eat. That doesn't mean you never eat something that is distasteful. So sure, you can eat things that might be unpalatable knowing that they're good for you. But if you see my point here, a fitness diet that is bitter or gross, you have some sort of unpleasant visceral reaction to, it has little chance of surviving over time. So let that logic prevail here. Which leads me to my key point this week. And this is where I position myself in this exercise is medicine conversation. It's actually a rhetorical question that I've asked before, and I'm, I'm going to ask it again many times throughout the podcast. Why can't better health be treated as a side effect of enjoyable physical activity? An active lifestyle where the behavior changes we make are part and parcel of our weekly life is much less about being responsible to our health than it is a freedom to express ourselves. And this is really what the research, the motivation research keeps telling us over and over and over again. We get a chance to freely express ourselves, be with like-minded others, and explore the capabilities of our bodies, and really enjoy and embrace the feedback we get from all of those things. It really is about enjoying life a little more, and a motivating, active lifestyle has all these great feelings that come with it. And according to the motivation research, that feel-first mindset to create experiences that feel the way you want them to feel creates much stronger loyalty than any alternative, much stronger loyalty. So again, why can't better health be a side effect? And so here's the bonus weekly question, the second question. 
out of all of the healthy options out there, taste matters, right? Taste matters. Are you doing activities, healthy activities, of course, are you doing activities that fit your tastes? Would you say your fitness diet is one that is a really accurate reflection of your tastes? Do you keep chowing down on healthy options despite these options tasting bitter and leaving an unpalatable aftertaste just to keep pushing that metaphor right off of a cliff, right? (laughs) Now, I'm I'm not going to sit here and claim that I'm the only one who is critical of exercise as medicine at all. In fact, there's some great articles that are out there, academic articles that um, argue against it. And uh, so my critical position is shared by quite a few people. I want to leave with a few of my favorite statements by academics on this matter. And the one I'm going to highlight is actually from uh, a couple of researchers here in Ottawa. So the title of this article is Words Matter, Reframing Exercises Medicine for the General Population to Optimize Motivation and Create Sustainable Behavior Change. And it was published by Michelle Fortier, Eva Guerin, and Michelle Seeger. These are terrific thinkers on exercise motivation. And here's what they say, which I just love. And I'm going to be pulling some quotes here, some food for thought. First, here's some key evidence they give. And I quote, Research shows that high-intensity movement tends to increase displeasure, which negatively reinforces ongoing decisions to be active. Conversely, positive emotions derived from physical activity have been shown to lead to behavior persistence 6 and 12 months later. Because people avoid what feels bad and approach what feels good, our suggestions to the general population about being physically active should include feelings of pleasure as an important criterion. Awesome. Just love that paragraph. But there's more. They then highlight the gap wonderfully with the statement. There's the gap in the discourse, let's just say. And I quote, It is crucial that its proponents, including healthcare providers, understand that what they care about achieving may not be congruent with what will optimally motivate the individuals they hope to influence. Finally, they cite that exercise as medicine might be too impersonal to be effective. Here's what they say in another quote. A self-compassionate approach to being physically active gives people permission to engage in activities that are enjoyable and feel good to them at a level of exertion that is comfortable to maintain. It's just a wonderful article. Now, Forche, Guerin, and Seeger's conclusions offer clues to the skills, and I call these sustainability skills, that are not being taught and therefore are not valued highly enough in this exercise is medicine discourse. Two of those skills include finding pleasurable activities that fit you and doing them, secondly, in pleasurable ways, mainly by managing the intensity. These are the skills that are really vital and they run counter to the popular no pain, no gain culture that is still prevalent. A culture that, in my opinion, exercises medicine may actually be reinforcing, even if by accident. If exercise really is medicine, we need to take that medicine on a regular basis, right? It's not just a one, you know, popping one pill and done. It's not a one and done. We need continual engagement in this behavior. We need to persist at it. We need to be consistent. This is much more an emotional exercise, an ongoing emotional exercise than it is an intellectual one. And herein lies why I keep pushing for 
changing the conversation or at least creating some new conversation to not only what I think is a more freeing way of thinking about physical activity, but also one that I think is based on important evidence. That evidence, the feel of physical activity matters to your loyalty. Without loyalty, exercise cannot provide ongoing medicinal effects. So if fitness keeps tasting like a bitter little pill or feels like a type of hand washing with little immediate payoff, you might be undermining the long game. Now, is exercising good for prevention, etc.? Yes, absolutely. So what? Knowing this hardly matters to the next time you exercise, which is another opportunity to strengthen the bond with your body and to keep building a system that has stamina, where being healthier is a side effect. With that, if you like the podcast so far, why not share a show or this show or the podcast in general with a friend who might be into it too? And of course, in the meantime, here's to living happily ever active. This episode of Happily Ever Active has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more content on the mental side of fitness. Oh, and don't forget to rate and review the show. See you next time.